From our study of enzymes, we now have some idea of how the rate of chemical reactions in the cell are speeded up so that they can occur in time frames consistent with cell growth. But what about this problem of direction, a problem the catalyst, the catalyst cannot address? A problem the catalysts cannot address. Are all the chemical transformations in these biosynthetic paths, for example, exergonic, so that the direction of carbon flow from glucose is a spontaneous reaction? The answer is no, quite the opposite. Most of the chemical transformations needed in a biosynthetic pathway are by themselves endergonic, and they will not go from left to right unless something is done about it. Thus, the building of a new E. coli cell must deal with this energy problem and much of the cell machinery has indeed been devoted to the solution. To understand the problem, we must discuss it in some more quantitative detail, and for this purpose, the use of the concept of free energy change associated with a chemical reaction is very useful. We can define a unit of energy such that it's tied to the directionality of a chemical reaction as follows. For a model reaction, A plus B goes to C plus D, written in the left to right direction, as indicated. If delta G is less than zero, then A and B will tend to produce C and D. If delta G is greater than zero, then C and D will tend to produce A and B. If delta G is zero, then the reaction will be at equilibrium, not tending to go in either direction in a net way. In an energy diagram, notice that delta G is independent of the root between the starting reactants, A and B, and the final products, C and D, say three cal kilocalories per mole, for all four of the roots shown here, taking A and B all the way up to free atoms, going through a transition state, a different transition state catalyzed by an enzyme, or even being converted on the bottom here to E and F as an intermediate step in an energy yielding reaction, and then back up to C and D in an energy requiring reaction. The delta G for A plus B goes to C plus D is the same independent of the root. Free energy is that part of the energy change associated with a chemical reaction that can be harnessed to perform work. We can measure delta G according to the following equation, which you must just take on faith here. Delta G equals delta G naught plus RT ln of C times D divided by A plus A times B, where A, B, C, and D are the concentrations of the reactants and the products at the moment being considered. This ratio is sometimes called Q, so delta G equals delta G naught plus RT ln Q. Q is not the equilibrium constant, though it looks like it. Here are the terms. R is the universal gas constant, 
1.98 calories per degree Kelvin per mole. T is the absolute temperature, where zero degrees is 273 degrees Kelvin. Room temperature is 22 degrees centigrade, but 298 degrees Kelvin. Ln is the natural log, and delta G naught is a constant, a quantity related to the intrinsic properties of A, B, C, and D. The first term, delta G naught, relates to the quality of the reactants and products, and the second term, RT ln Q, relates to the quantity of the reactants and products, how much of each is present. What is this delta G naught? It's called the standard free energy change of a reaction. One useful way to define it is to consider the special case when all the reactants and all the products are present at one unit concentration. Delta G equals delta G naught plus RT ln 1, which is just zero. So delta G equals delta G naught in this special case. So delta G naught is the free energy change that, that occurs when all participants in the chemical reaction are at unit concentration. What is unit concentration? One molar for most reactants and products. Water and hydrogen ions are treated differently, as we'll see. One way to think of this delta G naught is to picture a thousand moles of A, B, C, and D in a thousand liters of solution. So all components are at one molar. Now, one mole of A plus B is converted to C plus D. The energy absorbed is the standard free energy change. Note the concentration of reactants has not appreciably changed in this hypothetical condition. Why make such a fanciful and arbitrary situation? By defining the conditions for a standard free energy change, all reactions can be compared to one another regardless of the particular conditions. It puts them all on an equal footing. The delta G naught reflects the nature of the reactants and the products without regard to their concentration. Note that the actual free energy change of a reaction, delta G, does depend on these concentrations. And the second term of the equation for delta G takes these into account. Please note from the above explanation, that delta G and delta G naught are not the same thing. That distinction is important. Delta G naught can be calculated, although not accurately, from tables of free energies of formation from simple atoms and molecules, comparing these values for the reactants and the products. But it's most easily and accurately determined experimentally by measuring the concentration of the reactants and products at equilibrium. For at equilibrium, delta G equals zero, and Q equals the equilibrium constant, another special case. So delta G naught equals minus RT ln K equilibrium constant. If we measure A, B, C, and D at equilibrium, let's say we get C at equilibrium times D at equilibrium divided by A at equilibrium times B at equilibrium, equals 2.5 times 10 to the minus 3. Note that very little C and D are formed from A and B in this case. Then delta G naught is equal to minus 2 times 300 
times ln of 0.0025, which is minus 600 times minus 6, which is 3600. So the calculated delta G naught here is plus 3600 calories per mole, or plus 3.6 kilocalories per mole. So 3.6 kilocalories will be absorbed when one mole of A plus B goes to C plus D. Energy is absorbed rather than released, confirming the lack of a tendency of C and D to be formed from A and B. That is, since the standard free energy chain is positive, this reaction does not tend to go to the right, but rather to the left. To the left. That is, if we start with one molar, A, B, C, and D, then C plus D will go to A plus B. So A and B will build up at the expense of C plus D. Note that if we write A plus B goes to C plus B, C plus D, delta G naught equals 3.6 kilocalories per mole, then we can also write C plus D goes to A plus B, delta G naught equals minus 3.6 kilocalories per mole. The equilibrium constant for this C plus D goes to A plus B reaction is just 1 over 2.5 times 10 to the minus 3, or 400. Note also that if the reactants combine in ratios other than 1 to 1, we can write little a moles of a plus little b moles of b going to little c moles of c and little d moles of d, then delta G equals delta G naught plus RT ln c to the little c times d to the little d divided by a to the little a times b to the little b. To reiterate, if free <coughs> the free energy change of an overall reaction is independent of the route taken by the reactants. It could be direct or indirect, if you refer to that energy diagram that we looked at earlier. The reaction will go to the right if delta G is less than zero, and to the left if delta G is greater than zero. At delta G equals zero, the reaction's at equilibrium. And under this special condition, delta G equals zero, Q is equal to the equilibrium constant. We stated that delta G naught is called the standard free energy change and represents the free energy change when these reactants and products are observed to react with each being at a concentration of one molar, which is the standard condition by definition here. However, biochemists, as opposed to chemists, make two exceptions to the definition of these standard conditions in the cases of water and hydrogen ion concentration. Since these two components in a biological reaction are usually constant, they are defined to be equal to one for the purpose of delta G naught calculation. When the concentration of water is usually 55 molar, which is pure water, and the hydrogen ion concentration is really 10 to the minus 7th molar, that is pH 7 or neutrality. Strictly speaking, one should acknowledge this use of these two exceptions by designating the free energy change as delta G naught prime rather than delta G naught, but we'll not bother to do that here. All chemical reactions have a delta G naught associated with them, a value that can be written down in a book. 
Thus, any two reactions can be compared under the standard condition of unit concentration. The equilibrium constant of a reaction can be easily measured by measuring the concentration of all reactants and products after the reaction has reached equilibrium. From the equilibrium constant, one can calculate the delta G naught of the reaction, since at equilibrium, delta G equals zero, and so delta G naught equals minus RT ln equilibrium constant. Whereas the first term in the equation for delta G takes into account the nature of the reactants, it's the second term that deals with the amounts of the reactants and products in each situation under consideration. Thus, if you know what you have and how much of each, you can predict the direction in which that net reaction will go. To start our consideration of the free energy changes that are associated with biochemical reactions, let's consider one of the most important and fundamental energy-related biochemical reactions, the hydrolysis of adenosine triphosphate, or ATP. Hydrolysis means the breakage of bonds by the addition of water. Here, ATP plus water goes to ADP plus inorganic phosphate just the phosphate group, which we can abbreviate here by P sub I. The A in ATP stands for adenine, a, uh, a base that's found in uh, nucleic acids. R is ribose, a five-carbon sugar that we've met before. And to the ribose is joined three phosphate groups, which are themselves all joined to each other. The delta G for this hydrolysis reaction is about minus seven kilocalories per mole. Most hydrolysis reactions in the cell do release free energy, but usually less than five kilocalories per mole. The few, like ATP hydrolysis, that release more than five kilocalories per mole are important because this amount of energy can be harnessed for useful work, as we'll see. The bonds whose hydrolysis is seven kilocalories per mole or more, actually five kilocalories per mole or more, are called high energy bonds. These bonds are not stronger than the other bonds, so this is somewhat of a misnomer, but it turns out to be a convenient term. It's denoted by a squiggle when we're talking about it. AR, so we could say AR, adenosine ribose, phosphate, phosphate, squiggle phosphate. Look at the structure of ATP and we can rationalize the high energy release by seeing that the addition of water relieves the electrical repulsion between the negatively charged acidic phosphate groups. By such reasoning, we would predict that the bond between the first and second phosphates should also be a high energy bond. And indeed it is so. That is, hydrolyzing between Phosphorus atoms 1 and 2 also releases about 7 kilocalories per mole. That is, delta G naught is equal to minus 7 kilocalories per mole. On the other hand, the bond between the ribose and the first phosphate is not a high energy bond. Given the delta G naught, one can calculate the equilibrium constant, which turns out to be about 10 to the plus fifth. You should practice these types of calculations by doing the problems in problem set four. In doing these problems, note that the universal gas constants, usually given as 1.98 calories per degree mole, 
whereas delta G naught and delta G are usually expressed in kilocalories. So you usually have to divide the RT term by 1,000 to get an answer in kilocalories. I'll just note here that the concentration of water is not taken into account, as it's present at 55 molar in aqueous solution and doesn't change in aqueous reactions. And by convention, it's defined as 1. We can make such arbitrary definitions because we're only considering changes here, concentration changes, free energy changes, not absolute values. So if we start with one molar ATP, we'll end up with only about 10 to the minus fifth molar ATP remaining at equilibrium. Yet a one milliliter solution of ATP will last for days on this benchtop. We still must add a catalyst to get this reaction to go in a reasonable time. So we add an enzyme, let's say a pure preparation of ATP ACE. Now, all the ATP is hydrolyzed in a few minutes. The reaction's been allowed to reach equilibrium and has gone far to the right because of the very favorable large and negative delta G. And seven kilocalories of energy, free energy, is released. Free energy, so it could be used for useful work. But what work did it do here? Nothing? Energy had to go somewhere. It's released as heat. The test tube solution warmed by about 7 degrees centigrade, by my calculation, since there's one milliliter of solution here at one molar. This hydrolysis of ATP is in fact the most common reaction the cell uses to produce usable energy. The trick is to harness this energy chemically to put it to useful chemical work. Keep in mind the overall problem to make a new E. coli cell that requires many endergonic transformations. So let's take an example of one of these endergonic energy requiring reactions. One such reaction is the very first transformation that a glucose molecule undergoes upon entering an E. coli cell. Glucose plus inorganic phosphate goes to glucose 6-phosphate plus water. Delta G naught is plus 3.6 kilocalories per mole. So the delta G naught is unfavorable in the very first reaction in the, util in the utilization of glucose in the cell. How bad's the situation? Glucose plus phosphate goes to glucose 6-phosphate. The equilibrium constant for that reaction is G6P concentration divided by the glucose concentration times the phosphate concentration. If the glucose concentration and inorganic phosphate concentration are about 100th molar, which is typical in an E. coli cell, and the equilibrium constant from the delta G naught of plus 3.6 kilocalories per mole is 2.5 times 10 to the minus 3, then the G6P concentration will be 2.5 times 10 to the minus 7th molar, which is even below the KMs of most enzymes. For example, the next reaction taking glucose 6-phosphate further. Now let's consider putting the two reactions we've talked about together. ATP plus water goes to ADP plus phosphate. Delta G naught is minus 7 kilocalories per mole. Glucose plus inorganic phosphate goes to glucose 6-phosphate plus water. Delta G naught is plus 3.6 kilocalories per mole. 
If we add these two reactions, we get glucose plus ATP ends up as glucose 6-phosphate plus ADP. As you see, the waters, which, which don't change anyway, but the phosphates cancel out. We added phosphate in one reaction, and we produced it in another. We can add the delta G naughts for these two reactions to consider the overall net reaction, which in this case then would be minus 7 plus 3.6 equals minus 3.4 kilocalories per mole overall, the net sum of the two considered reactions. So let's mix the reactions together and hope for the best. I guess we should add a couple of enzymes to catalyze these two reactions, say glucose phosphorylase and phosphatase. But under these conditions, the 7 kilocalories per mole produced by the hydrolysis of ATP is lost mainly to heating the surrounding water molecules. And besides, in mammals, where E. coli lives, the temperature is kept constant, so we can't influence reactions by heat. The problem solved by an enzyme, hexokinase. This enzyme binds both ATP and glucose. The very phosphate from the ATP is transferred to the glucose molecule. So the overall reaction written here on the bottom line is not merely the net sum of the two reactions written above it. Rather, it is the reaction catalyzed by hexokinase. The phosphorylation of glucose has been coupled to the hydrolysis of ATP in a single reaction. What about the glucose 6-phosphate produced? Does it now contain the high-energy phosphate bond? Well, what's the delta G naught for G6P hydrolysis? It's easy. Minus 3.6 kilocalories per mole, since the reverse reaction, second line, is plus 3.6. But minus 3.6 falls short of the minus 5 needed to qualify for a high-energy bond. So there's no squiggle here. Remember, if you write a reaction backwards, you just reverse the sign of the delta G naught. This coupling of ATP hydrolysis is a very common way the cell uses to drive otherwise endergonic reactions. Since the ATP is so often used to pay for the energy cost of these chemical transformations, ATP is called the energy currency of the cell. Coupling to ATP is one of two ways the cell manages to run endergonic reactions. We'll discuss the second one a little later. So is this the solution for ATP growing on minimal medium? Far from it. We've just passed the buck. Where's this ATP coming from? Not from the medium, where glucose is the only carbon source. ATP must be synthesized from glucose, just like all the other small molecules. And that itself takes energy. But once we have some ATP, most of the molecule can be used over and over and over again to provide energy for coupled reactions, as long as we can rephosphorylate ADP back to ATP. The problem is thus shifted to this reaction. ADP plus phosphate goes to ATP. Delta G naught is plus 7 kilocalories per mole. If we could find a way to do that, we would have solved our energy problem. Here's where we have some divergence in the unity of biochemistry. The world's divided mainly into two types of organisms, those who can run this reaction using the energy derived from sunlight, 
the photosynthetic organisms like plants. And the rest of us, E. coli, humans, butterflies, who make ATP from ADP by using the energy derived from the breakdown or catabolism of carbon compounds like glucose. Plants are actually also included in this latter category, since when it's dark, they derive energy from glucose catabolism, as the rest of us do. We'll consider this process of glucose-based energy metabolism in some, de in some detail and not really consider photosynthesis for lack of time. Obviously, photosynthesis is the more basic and essential process for the planet, since there would be no glucose if it were not for the plants and their ability to harness solar energy. But photosynthesis is a bit more complex, so it's not a good place to start. So, ATP by way of glucose. The overall plan for E. coli, say, growing in air, dissolved oxygen, glucose plus oxygen goes to CO2 plus water, and ADP plus phosphate is going to go to ATP. First, an overview. Three parts for this transformation, and each of these three parts will be concerned with our goal to produce ATPs for use in reactions that require energy. Step one is glycolysis, in which the six carbon glucose is broken down to a three carbon compound, pyruvic acid. Step two, the Krebs cycle, in which the pyru pyruvic acid, or pyruvate, is broken down to CO2. And step three, the electron transport chain, in which oxygen is taken up and water is produced in a separate series of reactions. I'm now going to discuss glycolysis in some detail for two reasons for this detail. One, it will illustrate the problems and solutions of energy requirements. So one aim is to understand energy metabolism. A second aim is that it's a real-life detailed example of a typical metabolic pathway such as we've been alluding to with all these arrows leading to A's and B's and C's. The pathway will be characterized by a series of small changes between substrate and product at each step. I'll show the first few reactions with the sugar in the open chain form because I think it's easier to see what's going on. So if you refer to the first four steps or <coughs> of glycolysis on your handout. The first step we see is this phosphorylation, a kinase enzyme, hexokinase, that we've just discussed. And so you end up with glucose 6-phosphate after step one. Step two is an isomerization of glucose 6-phosphate to fructose 6-phosphate. Note the movement of the C double bond O carbonyl group, which is an aldehyde at the C1 or top position of the glucose 6-phosphate molecule, now down to, to produce a ketone where the carbonyl is at carbon 2 in the fructose 6-phosphate molecule. Glucose and fructose are stereoisomers of each other, are structural isomers of each other, and and so this process is called an isomerization. And it's a rather small change. Step three is once again a phosphorylation. 
this time at carbon 1, so we end up with fructose now, 1,6-diphosphate. Note we've now used two ATPs. Rather than generating energy, we're consuming it so far. Step four is anhydrolysis with an enzyme called aldolase, and we're finally getting a breakdown of the six carbon starting sugar to two smaller molecules, two three carbon uh, compounds, dihydroxyacetone phosphate at the top, drawn at the top, and glyceraldehyde 3-phosphate at the bottom. Note that the dihydroxyacetone phosphate differs from the glyceraldehyde 3-phosphate in the same way that fructose differs from glucose. The dihydroxyacetone phosphate is a ketone, and the glyceraldehyde 3-phosphate is an aldehyde with carbonyl on the end carbon. Step five involves an isomerization, completely analogous to the isomerization in step two, but in a reverse way. In this case, the ketone nature of dihydroxyacetone phosphate is going to be switched to the aldehyde form as the carbonyl is formed on the end carbon, of course the carbon here away from the phosphate end. Once that carbonyl and dihydroxyacetone phosphate has switched with hydroxyl so that it's now on the end, we can simply turn it upside down, compare it to glyceraldehyde-3-phosphate, and we see it's the same exact compound. So at the end of the fifth step, we actually have two molecules of glyceraldehyde-3-phosphate from our original one molecule of glucose. And the cost so far has been two ATPs. Now this ATP debt is a loose end that we'll have to deal with sooner or later, and we're going to see a number of loose ends where we use a compound and then have to be sure to pay our debts to return that compound if our net flow of our carbon compounds is from glucose down, in this case, to pyruvate. If we use an ATP, we have to pay it back. Step six is an oxidation. As we can see in the diagram, an oxidation is a loss of electrons. In this case, our glyceraldehyde 3-phosphate is going to combine with another free phosphate to form 1,3-diphosphoglyceric acid, or 1,3-di-PGA. We saw oxidation before in the formation of the disulfide bond. There, the loss of two electrons was in the two hydrogen atoms that were taken away from the sulfhydryl. Here in reaction six, we have two electrons to be lost from the reactants, glyceraldehyde-3-phosphate and phosphate. So you can see from the diagram, two electrons have been lost. The protons are actually not important in oxidation. They're sometimes there with the electrons and sometimes not. These electrons must go somewhere. They're taken up by the oxidizing agent, which itself will get reduced. 
So every oxidation reaction is an oxidation reduction reaction. In this case, the oxidizing agent is a compound called NAD, which stands for nicotinamide adenine dinucleotide. As you can see in the diagram, it consists of several parts. There's at the, at the bottom an adenine, ribose, a couple of phosphates, and another ribose. The business end of the molecule is the nicotinamide part, which is also called niacin. It is the vitamin niacin. Niacin sounds a little less ominous than nicotinamide. The nicotinamide ring can take up the two electrons and add them to the ring. In getting reduced, the NAD can accept the two electrons, but only one proton. The other proton goes into solution as a hydrogen ion. But it's the electrons that are important in oxidations. Instead of writing the reduction of NAD as NAD plus goes to NADH plus H plus, we'll simply write NAD goes to NADH2, referring to the two hydrogens that came from the glyceraldehyde 3-phosphate, despite the fact that both protons did not end up on NAD. This reaction 6 is rather complicated, involving a phosphorylation as well as an oxidation. The phosphorylation did not require an ATP, but it did require an NAD. So now we have two loose ends. Analogous to the ATP-ADP situation, we have to worry about restoring NADs from NADH2s, as well as ATPs from ADPs. But at least we have something of value here. If you look at the overall handout, the handout on overall Uh, scheme of the glycolytic pathway and look at the 1,3-diphosphoglyceric acid molecule, you see there's a squiggle up there between the phosphate and the carboxylic acid group that has formed in this glyceric acid part of the molecule. That means there's enough energy that can be released from the hydrolysis of this phosphate even to drive the phosphorylation of ADP in a coupled reaction. So let's take the money and run. This high-energy bond is cashed in in the next reaction, reaction 7. Note that the top carbon is now a carboxylic acid in 3-phosphoglyceric acid. Whereas it had been an aldehyde, in glyceraldehyde 3-phosphate, this changes the result of the oxidation that took place in reaction 6. So. We have ATP produced in reaction 7, starting with ADP. And so we've paid off one of our ATP debts that we ran up at the start. Wait a minute. Actually, we're all paid up. Since we have two diphosphoglyceric acids for every mole of glucose that started down the glycolytic pathway. So we've put in two, going from glucose to fructose 1,6-diphosphate. And we've gotten back two here in reaction 7. Let's continue along with reaction 8, which is another isomerization reaction, this time from 3-phosphoglyceric acid to 2-phosphoglyceric acid. So it's a movement of the phosphate group from the end to the middle. 
and the hydroxyl is now on the end. Step nine is a dehydration where a molecule of water is removed, resulting in a double bond between the two lower carbons as drawn. The result is an unstable compound, phosphoenol pyruvic acid, or PEP, one whose hydrolysis can result in the release of a large packet of free energy. So you see that squiggle phosphate on the phosphoenol pyruvic acid, where there was no squiggle phosphate on its predecessor, the 2-phosphoglyceric acid. Now, 2-phosphoglyceric acid, as well as phosphoenol pyruvate, are both at a higher energy level than pyruvate, which is going to result from the hydrolysis of that phosphate group. But the shifting around of atoms allows a cash-in of ATP along the way, since the phosphate bond is a high energy bond in phosphoenol pyruvic acid. So it's a matter of redistributing the energy in the molecule such that hydrolysis will now produce um, more than five kilocalories per mole. In reaction 10, then, the transfer of the phosphate to ATP occurs, resulting in the product pyruvic acid, or pyruvate, which can be considered the endpoint of glycolysis. So after the 10 steps of, hydrolysis, of glycolysis, we have four ATPs produced and two invested for a net gain of two ATPs produced from ADP. So glycolysis does produce energy in the form of ATP. The overall reaction will run far to the right as the delta G naught from glucose to two pyruvates is minus 18 kilocalories per mole, even taking the couple of reactions producing the two net ATPs into account. That is, one glucose plus two ADPs plus two phosphates plus two NADs, giving two pyruvates at the end plus two ATPs and two NADH2s, that reaction, overall reaction, has a delta G naught of minus 18 kilocalories per mole. So it goes far to the right. The diagram shows the delta G naughts for the individual steps in glycolysis. Although the pathway overall is quite favorable, compare the energy level of glucose, which we're setting here at zero for, for uh, uh, comparison's sake, down to minus 18 for the two pyruvates produced at the end, some of the individual reactions are quite unfavorable, most extreme perhaps being equation four. The energy requiring, requiring reactions in this case are being pushed by the buildup of reactants, by the more favorable reactions before them, and they're being pulled by the withdrawal of products by the more exergonic reactions further downstream. The actual delta Gs will be influenced by the drain of products, so that the second term in the equation for delta G is being brought into play here. Delta G equals delta G naught plus RTLN concentration of products divided by concentration of reactants, where RT here is about 0.6 in kilocalories per degree mole. For instance, if the products are drained such that the ratio of product to reactant reaches down to 10 to the minus fifth, this produces 
this term itself produces about 7 kilocalories per mole of negative delta G, enough to balance out the unfavorable delta G naught of plus 6.8, which is for reaction 4. That is, the standard free energy change for reaction 4 is plus 6.8, but the delta G, under conditions where the product is being drained, is uh, could become negative. This indirect effect on the delta G is the second method the cell uses to carry out an individual reaction that has an unfavorable delta G naught. So we have two methods. One, direct coupling of the unfavorable reaction to an energetically favorable one to produce a new coupled reaction with a net negative or favorable delta G naught, as in the hexokinase reaction one. Or two, indirectly via the withdrawal of products or buildup of substrates to produce a negative delta G, even in the face of a positive delta G naught. So we have our overall negative delta G naught for this pathway, and we have generated net ATP, so we should feel pretty good. Except for one thing, we have an important loose end still to tie up. We borrowed an NAD to oxidize glyceraldehyde-3-phosphate. That was a key reaction in the pathway, as oxidations are usually accompanied by large changes in free energy. We were able to get a phosphate added to our three-carbon compound, and this phosphate was the one we used to phosphorylate ADP in the very next step, step seven. We used NAD, and it became reduced to NADH2, so now we must consider how we're gonna repay that debt. Otherwise, the small stores of NAD in the cell would very soon all be converted to NADH2, glycolysis would quickly grind to a halt. We need an oxidizing agent to oxidize NADH2. A great one abounds, oxygen itself. It readily takes up electrons. For instance, iron, divalent iron, Fe++, in the presence of oxygen, goes to trivalent iron as electrons are removed. Fe plus 3, which is the rusting of steel, which you see all the time. Does E. coli have access to oxygen? In the lab, yes, we vigorously and constantly shake the E. coli cultures on mechanical shakers to get air dissolved in the culture medium to provide a constant source of oxygen, called an aerobic state. In the gut, sometimes yes, sometimes no, as they get real crowded. Do our own cells have access to oxygen? Sure, through the lungs, via the blood vessels to all tissues. But when you're running across campus to class so as not to miss the first golden words here, your muscles may need ATP faster than you can deliver oxygen to them for NADH2 oxidation. Your muscles will be in an anaerobic state. And that's the state also for many organisms that live in naturally anaerobic environments in the mud at the bottom of rivers, etc. So let's first consider the anaerobic case when no oxygen is available for the oxidation of NADH2. Under these circumstances, the cell must make do what it has available, which is mainly two pyruvates. Fortunately, pyruvate itself is able to act as an oxidizing agent, as seen in reaction 11 where it accepts electrons into its C double bond O bond 
adding two hydrogens as well to form lactate or lactic acid. It gets the electrons from our NADH2 molecule, which is really NADH plus, NADH and H plus. So it's recapturing one proton, a hydrogen ion, from the aqueous pool. Even the delta G naught is favorable, and we get our NAD regenerated from NADH2. The NAD shuttles back and forth then, getting reduced in reaction 6 and reoxidized in reaction 11 over and over and over again, while glucose runs down to lactate, and ADPs are converted to ATPs to power cell division for E. coli or running up the stairs for humans in the case of ins insufficient oxygen. I think it's the buildup of lactic acid that makes your muscles hurt if they're doing anaerobic glycolysis for too long. So pyruvate is a crossroads. If there's no oxygen, then if you're E. coli or humans, you carry out a lactic acid fermentation. If you are yeast, there's a variation on this theme. You break down pyruvate first to acetaldehyde and CO2 in step 12, which is not an oxidation. But then use the acetaldehyde as an oxidizing agent for NADH2, with the product here being the 2-carbon alcohol, ethanol. This is the reactions 12 and 13. Beer dinkers appear appreciate this variation, as lactic acid beer would be pretty bad. Probably not even produce those psychopharmacological effects, for which ethanol is famous. Just as in the case of ATP, the NAD-NADH2 case is one of regeneration, not generation. Once a little NAD is made by a regular biosynthetic pathway, it can shuttle back and forth millions of times, getting alternatively reduced and oxidized. Let's consider the efficiency of fermentation. For glucose going to two lactates without considering the couplings to the formation of ATPs, delta G naught would be minus 45 kilocalories per mole. That's not taking into account producing the ATPs. Out of this comes two ATPs worth 14 kilocalories per mole. So the efficiency is about 14 divided by 45, or 30%. That is, 30% of the potentially useful energy is actually turned into useful energy in the form of ATP. That's not bad efficiency. It's about what a, what a, a good gasoline engine can do. Where do the other 31 kilocalories, that's 45 minus 14, that were conserved in ATP, there was 31 that was lost. Where did this 31 get to? They're released as heat, which is why after you've run fast to class, in addition to the lactic acid pain in your legs, you're also sweating. Now, taking the ATPs into account, the overall delta G naught is 45 minus the 14, or 31 kilocalories per mole. So the lactic acid fermentation runs essentially completely to the right, or clockwise, if it's drawn on our, on our handout as it's written. The efficiency is pretty good. But on the other hand, the yield is poor. What do, I, what do I mean by yield? Well, glucose has a lot more chemical energy in it than we're tapping here. For example, if we burn glucose, that is, react it with oxygen, and measure the calories of heat given off, we get no less than 686 kilocalories per mole. 
Compare that to the measly 45 kilocalories per mole we got from converting glucose to two lactates. The lactic acid we're throwing away at the end could be used for more energy, but in the absence of oxygen, there's no way to use it. So we'll turn to what happens in the presence of oxygen in our next lecture.